0: The Science Edition of Press Conference USA. Here's your host, Rick Pantaleo. Welcome to the Science Edition of Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. I'm Rick Pantaleo. The National Institute of Aging, a part of the U.S. National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, describes Alzheimer's disease as a progressive and irreversible brain condition that slowly destroys a person's memory thinking, social skills, and ultimately the patient's ability to take care of even the simplest of daily tasks. Gerontologists say Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia among older adults. The world-renowned Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota says Alzheimer's causes the brain to shrink and brain cells to die. According to the World Health Organization, dementia is a global epidemic. Worldwide, about 50 million people have the illness and those numbers are expected to rise to 82 million in 2030 and 152 million in 2050. The disease can seriously impact not only the patient, but the patient's family and friends who find themselves as caregivers. The stress and sadness of having to watch the deterioration of someone who was once a healthy, vital, intelligent, and independent adult can take a serious toll as the disease progresses and worsens. Because of these factors, there are some who see Alzheimer's and other irreversible forms of dementia as diseases that can affect several generations. Today, we'll talk about both the medical and scientific aspects of the illnesses themselves and the impact they can have on loved ones and caregivers. My guest for the first segment of our program is Dr. Constantine Lequezzo's M.D., Dr. LaQuetzos is the Elizabeth Blank Althaus Professor in Alzheimer's Research in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Laketzos, can you please explain exactly what are dementia and Alzheimer's disease?
1: Dementia really describes a patient's clinical state or clinical situation. It refers to someone who has problems with memory. Decision-making, communicating, using language, and other related aspects of thinking that are impaired enough that the person can't function at the same level. So maybe they can't live alone or handle their medicines, manage their money, and so forth. Dementia is a very nonspecific condition, very common in older people. After age 75 or 80, it might affect as many as 40%, much less common at younger ages. And it has many causes. They all have something to do with brain disease. The most common cause is this brain disease that we call
0: Alzheimer's.
1: So dementia is a clinical condition, and Alzheimer's is a disease of the brain. That is the most common cause of dementia.
0: What are some of the early signs and symptoms of the diseases?
1: So there are two groups. One are what we call cognitive or thinking-type symptoms, and the other are what we call non-cognitive or behavioral. The thinking symptoms might be forgetting things, misplacing things quite often to the point that they're impacting functioning, getting lost even in a neighborhood or driving around having trouble organizing things that the person could do in the past quite easily. For example, if someone is a handyman and takes care of Jobs that need fixing around the house, starting having problems with that. Also, social withdrawal because the person can't think or engage in a complicated social conversation. So those are the thinking-type symptoms. The other group of symptoms are what we call behavioral, mostly have to do with changes in mood or personality, irritability, unexpected anger, depression, anxiety or worry, in particular about the future, trouble sleeping. So that's the other common set of symptoms. And of course, they can both occur in the same person, or it could be one or the other pathway that a given person follows.
0: And what are some of the risk factors associated with dementia and Alzheimer's disease? The
1: biggest risk factor is age. So under age 60, only about 1% of the population is thought to have dementia. As you get older, like I mentioned, after age 80, 85, it could be as many as the third of everybody has dementia. So age is the biggest risk factor. The other is genetics, heritability. There are what we call deterministic genetic factors, so if you get a particular gene from either parent on its own, it will cause you to have dementia from Alzheimer's at some point in your life if you live long enough, but that's only about 5% of everyone with dementia. Everybody else, there are contributions of probably a few dozen genes, each which adds a little bit of risk and makes it more likely that you will get dementia. Still, from the genetics point of view, that's hard to quantify, and we don't have the kinds of tests quite yet that would help us to find that for one person. So age, genetics, and then other things like chronic stress probably a risk factor certain sleep conditions like sleep apnea chronic depression as well is a major risk factor and then a whole constellation of what are called vascular risk factors like high blood pressure diabetes strokes heart disease a heart arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation is a common risk factor as well
0: how does the disease attack the brain and subsequently the body the way
1: it is thought to attack the brain is by the deposition of this protein called amyloid, which is toxic. It damages brain cells. And then it spreads around the brain. So it goes from the parts where it starts, usually a part of the brain called the hippocampus, and over a long time, which may be a decade, throughout the brain, essentially kills the brain's ability to function. The effects of the body on the body are pretty much secondary because they depend on the loss of brain control. So the disease spreads and people lose the ability to think and remember. But in later stages, as it spreads throughout the brain, they might lose the ability to swallow, dress themselves physically, walk, retain their continence, et cetera. So the first is the spread and basically kills the brain, and because it kills the brain, the functions in the body that depend on the brain are lost, along the lines of uh, the examples I gave you.
0: And according to the WHO, dementia is now a global epidemic worldwide about. 50 million people currently have dementia, and that rate is expected to rise to 82 million by 2030 and 152 million in 2050. What do you think is behind the growing rate of people with dementia?
1: Yeah, I will. I will uh, uh, respectfully, slightly correct WHO and say that it's really a world pandemic. The difference between an epidemic and a pandemic is that an epidemic is regional, only in certain areas, increase in the disease rate, whereas a pandemic is everywhere. And I think dementia and Alzheimer's meet the criteria for a pandemic. And I sometimes, and I've been saying this well before we had the current pandemic. So it's the next pandemic that we're going to have to deal with, in, in my view. Why is this happening? Well, the major driving force is that people are living to older ages. Mm -hmm. Given that age is the primary risk factor for dementia and Alzheimer's disease, as the global population is aging, we will have more and more people with dementia simply because we, there are more older people alive than healthy
0: otherwise. To try to dispel a myth that some people think that all elderly people have or get dementia and that it's a normal part of aging, what are your thoughts?
1: It gets into the definition of what's normal part of aging. So by age 90, pretty much all men have prostate cancer. But it's not necessarily, they have prostate cancer based on a strict definition of cancer, but it's not necessarily a cancer that's going to kill them. So I think a similar situation exists with cognitive decline and dementia. In these uh, age groups, uh, very large numbers of the population have cognitive decline, but not everybody. In fact, there have been some estimates years back suggesting that about a quarter of the population won't ever get dementia, even if they live to be in their mid to late 90s. So it's not inevitable from what we know, although if we are so fortunate as humanity, we start extending lifespans to 105 110 or more it's it's possible that we will see that almost all of us will get dementia which is back to my point about prostate cancer the fact that everybody gets something at some point doesn't in that instance might make it inevitable
0: doctor you mentioned a little earlier that age is a prime risk factor for dementia alzheimers what is early onset dementia alzheimers at what age can someone develop the disease
1: Early onset refers to the development of the disease at an age younger than an arbitrary number, in this case, 65 or younger. There's some debate about how different or the similar earlier onset dementia is. I've seen folks as young as 30s if they have dementia from a car accident where they get a lot of brain damage. And people with Alzheimer's I've seen getting dementia in their young 40s. That's pretty rare. But uh, through all age spans, there are other brain diseases that will cause dementia, Parkinson's being one example. And These are all diseases that are referred to as neurodegenerative, where you have progressive damage to the brain, just like with Alzheimer's. There's also another common cause of dementia, and that's brain vascular disease. We talked about vascular risk factors. Well, if you have strokes or enough strokes, then um, you're at risk for getting dementia. Back to the same paradigm: you get enough brain damage from traumatic brain injury or stroke, or a disease process like Alzheimer's, then you're likely to get dementia.
0: The question I'm curious about: and while the disease ah. may take a long time to manifest themselves, can someone already be developing them but are still able to function normally?
1: Yeah, it's not uncommon, actually. So what's going on in the brain can precede the clinical symptoms for for a while. So think of it this way. The disease might start in the brain, might progress, potentially for many years. You have no symptoms. Then you start getting mild symptoms like memory loss or irritability. And then over time, you develop more severe symptoms and you start becoming disabled. That's the kind of spectrum to think about. So, yes, someone can have no symptoms and be in the brain stages, if you will, of Alzheimer's disease, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where the person has had it for a few decades and now they're completely disabled and they are bedfast and need to be fed and are very, very impaired.
0: Like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's is a progressive disease, and I understand that dementia, Alzheimer's, is a fatal disease. How do patients usually die from the diseases?
1: So most people with dementia in old age do not die from dementia. I know that's not your question, but just to make the point, they tend to die from the comorbidity. So they might become very disabled and fall and break their hip and die from the consequences of a hip fracture. Or they might be disabled, get a bladder infection. The bladder infection isn't detected in time. They get what's called sepsis, which is a systemic infection, and they die from that. In terms of how you die from something like Alzheimer's, it's because the disease spreads throughout the brain and basic body functions that depend on the brain are lost. So you can't eat, you can't swallow, you can't move. You basically become bedbound. and in the very late stages are, are barely conscious as well. Potentially a, a what some people refer to as a progressive vegetative state. So you typically die from a comorbidity. Depending on your age and your other health, you may die from the disease itself because it has so badly damaged your brain.
0: According to the Washington Post, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently approved the first Alzheimer's treatment intended to slow cognitive decline. Now, this was hailed by patients and advocates alike, but it also drew sharp criticism by others who argued that there was not sufficient evidence that the drug works. Doctor, could you please tell us about this new treatment and could you share your thoughts about its effectiveness and whether the criticism is warranted?
1: Yeah, it is indeed a very controversial treatment. Let me see if I can lay the foundation for understanding the controversy. It has been believed or hypothesized, meaning unproven for a while, that people get Alzheimer's disease because a particular kind of protein called beta amyloid, or I'll refer to it, as amyloid from now on, starts depositing in the brain in a, in a way that damages the brain that's toxic. And the view is that this amyloid deposits for a long time in the brains of people, and that down the line they will then get the symptoms of dementia and the symptoms that we were just talking So this drug, as aducanumab, or aduhelm as the company that makes it is branding it, reduces the amount of amyloid protein in the brain of people who have a lot of amyloid. And it's probably quite effective at doing that. There's little controversy that it reduces amyloid. Unfortunately, at the same time, the company that developed it did some studies that had had very equivalent results about whether people actually benefit clinically. So, if you look at the effect of the drug on symptoms, the kinds of symptoms that I was just talking about before, it's really a very weak case that it helps. And that's where the controversy comes from. The FDA has taken the position that amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's disease and therefore a drug that removes amyloid is a treatment. The field, however, believes that part of the proof of whether amyloid is the cause rests on the benefits clinically that you get from a drug. So the fact that this drug removes amyloid but does not change clinical course fundamentally challenges the premise upon which the FDA has approved. So a scientific advisory board of about a dozen advisors essentially all voted against the approval, saying that the FDA's reasoning that removing amyloid means you're curing the disease is incorrect or at least doesn't have enough evidence.
0: Doctor, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about dementia, Alzheimer's, and for providing us with such wonderful insights.
1: Well, you're very kind to say that. I appreciate your inviting me, and uh, I look forward to hearing your program when it's launched.
0: That was Dr. Constantine Laquetzos, M.D. He is the Elizabeth Blank Althaus Professor of Alzheimer's Research in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Let's take a break now. This is the science edition of Press Conference USA. I'd like to remind you that Press Conference USA is available for free download from our website, voanews.com PCUSA, and from many streaming services such as Apple Podcasts. We also hope you'll get in touch with us through either Facebook at VOACurrentAffairs or at Facebook and Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. You can also just Send us an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com. Be sure to listen this weekend to other VOA current affairs programs like Encounter and Issues in the News. On Encounter, Carol Castillo and her expert guests talk about the crises in the Caribbean nations of Haiti and Cuba. And Kim Lewis and her panel of journalists will discuss the top stories of the week on Issues in the News. Let's continue with the science edition of Press Conference USA. Today, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and other forms of irreversible dementia. In this segment, we'll talk about the impact and strain Alzheimer's disease can have on close loved ones, especially those responsible for giving care to the patient. A guest for this segment of our program is Christina Irving. Ms. Irving is a licensed clinical social worker, the Clinical Services Director and Family Consultant at the Family Caregivers Alliance, a national nonprofit caregiver support organization that is headquartered in San Francisco, California. Christina, for loved ones of Alzheimer's and dementia patients, many refer to the diseases as the long goodbye. Can you explain this?
2: The long goodbye is is used so often because of the long progression of Alzheimer's and the changes and losses that the person with Alzheimer's goes through over the course of the disease and the losses that the family goes through. They're not the same person that they were before. And so families experience this long grief process um, often called anticipatory grief, or ambiguous loss because the person's still here, they're still with us, and yet they're not the same as they were before. And we see and grieve these losses over time from who we remember them to be prior to the onset of Alzheimer's.
0: Christina, a close family member or friend has just been diagnosed with dementia. What should you do next? How do you prepare to become a caregiver? Getting help
2: Early is really important, even before you think you need it, um, so that you can prepare as best as possible for what's to come. So often, we'll hear from caregivers that they're doing okay, they're managing, it's early, they don't think they need a lot of help yet, and yet the sooner they connect to community resources or supports, the better it will be for them in the long term because they'll know what's available when they really do need more help. So for example, caregivers attending classes to learn how to communicate with the person they're caring for as the disease changes can be so helpful for them because it's not intuitive anymore. That communication is different. Um, Support groups for caregivers can be invaluable. Besides getting the emotional support from other caregivers, they can be a great way to learn the tips and tricks that other caregivers have found helpful over the course of that disease process. Um, So getting as much education as you can about what does it mean to have dementia, what legal and financial planning do we need to do, how is this going to change the way we interact and communicate with them, and what are the resources that are available when we do need more help?
0: Christina, you alluded to my next question here. I understand that dementia, Alzheimer's, progresses through a series of stages. Can you talk about these stages and the differences in caregiving at each?
2: It can be really hard to determine exactly what stage of dementia somebody is in. Um, Over the years, we've seen it described in seven stages or sometimes five. More or less, we like to think of it in terms of three stages of early, middle, or late. Um, Even within that, there's going to be some days that somebody's doing a little bit better and other days where they're having a harder time. But in those earlier stages, somebody is still mostly independent. Um, We may notice more changes in their ability to manage finances and some of the executive functioning um, and some changes in memory. So families start stepping in to help make sure that bills are getting paid, um, that somebody's not overextending their finances and doesn't become um, susceptible to scams or financial abuse. Uh, But they may be doing okay with managing all their personal care and, you know, being independent around their house. But getting out and about in the community might be a little bit harder in terms of transportation. So that's where families start to step in and, and help facilitate those more independent activities. Um, And as it moves into the middle stage, we see people need more assistance with daily care and tasks, definitely around cooking, um, continued help around finances, but often more help with things like personal care, getting dressed and taking a shower. And someone may be able to physically do those activities themselves but they may need the reminders or the cues of when to do it and exactly what to do. And as it progresses through those those middle stages and into the later stages, we see somebody really need a lot more help with their personal care tasks to the point that families are really helping somebody take a shower, go to the bathroom, get dressed. Um, they might need a lot more prompts just around eating. Um, As changes in visual um, and spatial and depth perception happen, there may be more concerns around fall risk and mobility. Um, So there's a lot more hands-on care that families provide through the course of the disease. And then around end-of-life care, it can be much more intense and encompass a lot more medical tasks as well.
0: What are some of the issues and challenges to providing care for dementia patients?
2: Some of the major challenges that we hear from caregivers are the length of the disease process. It can last for a number of years. Um, The uncertainty around how it's going to progress because it does look a little bit different for everybody and we don't know the, the speed of that progression. And then the changes in communication and and behavior. So for example, some of the symptoms like anxiety or problems with executive functioning may be more severe in some individuals than others. And caregivers need to learn how to adjust their communication so they're not asking questions that rely on short-term memory when that part of the brain is affected. And so this intuitive way we have of communicating with people doesn't work anymore as we see dementia or Alzheimer's progress. And so caregivers having to learn a whole different way of communicating and interacting with somebody is a big challenge and stressor.
0: And there's such a need for support around that. Tell us please about respite support and its importance for caregivers.
2: So respite just means to get a break. Um, and having time off is so important to caregivers. We know that caregiving can take a toll on somebody's physical and emotional health over time. And the caregivers who come through this process with the least amount of, of impact, and still a lot of impact, but the least amount on their own health and well being, are often those that have additional supports and have time to even take care of their own health. So respite can come from family members or friends who are stepping in to give you a break, um, helping watch the person you're caring for so you can get out of the house, see your own doctor, go for a walk or visit with a friend. Um, It can also be from more formal sources of support, hiring in-home help through an agency or finding a provider who can come in, provide that care, for your loved ones so that you're able to get away for a little bit um, in places that have adult day programs that can be a great source of respite because it's somewhere that the person with dementia goes to during the day for a few hours to get more socialization and stimulation but to give them family some time off so there's lots of different ways respite can work It can be challenging to find what works best for you and for your family member, but it is so important for caregivers to have some of that downtime so that they can nourish their own energy and make sure that they're taking care of their own physical and emotional health.
0: And finally, Christina, the big question here, as the disease progresses and the caregiver, often an elderly spouse, Can no longer give the proper care to the patient and the decision must be made that the patient must be put in a facility that cares for alzheimer's dementia patients how do you know when to make that decision and how do you deal with the guilt
2: there is no one right way for people to provide care in the later stages some people are able to keep somebody at home if they have enough support For others, finding a care home is really necessary for the safety of the person with dementia and the caregiver's well-being, particularly for elderly spousal caregivers. Guilt is one of the most common emotions that caregivers experience, that sense of I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing it right. This is family. I'm supposed to care for my own. And so it's it's never gonna really go away for caregivers, but to understand and and recognize that they're doing the best they can with what the reality of their circumstances are, with what supports are available, um, and that moving somebody to a care home, if that ends up being the best decision in terms of needed care and support for you and your family member, that doesn't mean you're abdicating your role as a caregiver. It's different now. You are their advocate. You're making sure they get the care they need, but you might also just get to be that spouse or partner or child again, in that you get to visit and spend time with them without having to be the one who's doing all the daily care. And that relationship can be so invaluable for both you and the person with dementia. But talking with other caregivers, I think, is one of the best things that that people can do when they're facing these hard decisions because others have gone through it. It is a hard thing. There's a lot of guilt that comes with it. And the more support you have, the better.
0: Christina Irving, thank you so very much for talking with us today and giving us some rather useful, helpful insight into the caregiving aspect of Alzheimer's dementia. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was Christina Irving, a licensed clinical social worker, the clinical services director, and family consultant at the Family Caregivers Alliance, a national nonprofit caregiver support organization that is headquartered in San Francisco, California. And that's all the time we have for this science edition of Press Conference USA. I'd like to thank Morgan Schneider a producer in our current affairs unit for her help with the production of this program. Thank you for listening today. This is Rick Pantaleo reminding you to be sure to join Carol Castile next week for another press conference USA on the Voice of America.